Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. Welcome to uh, Crosspoint Community Church. We're so glad that you are here with us this morning. If you're watching online, super glad that you've joined us. If you're here in person on this lovely windy day, we're really glad you're here. I apologize in advance that you just have to watch my ever-thinning hair just flop around in the wind all day this morning, but that's where we're at as a person, okay? So I apologize in advance. Hopefully it's not too distracting to you. If you are new with us, uh, I just wanted to kind of fill you in on what we are working through on our messages on Sunday mornings uh, here at Crosspoint. We are looking at the book of Mark. And today, uh, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 1. If you have a Bible with you, or if you're at home or have a device or whatever, you're welcome to follow along if you would like. We're going to be reading uh, chapter 1, verse 35. We're going to be going through chapter 2, verse 12. And uh, the reason we decided, we felt like it was so important for us to spend some time in the book of Mark, going to be doing that up, up through Christmas and even afterwards, is right now in the season that we're living in as a, a globe, really, um, tensions are high. People have a lot of frustrations and opinions. And as followers of Jesus, we're certainly not immune to that. But one thing that we constantly need to do is we need to get a clear picture of who Jesus is. And what better place to find a clear picture of actually who Jesus is than in the Gospels. And the Gospel of Mark, actually, like, I studied it in college. I knew it was there. It was like one of the stories of Jesus' life, but I never really thought much about it. I am really growing to appreciate the book of Mark. Uh, It is a fast-moving, just kind of boom, boom, boom. This is what Jesus did. This is what Jesus said. This is what you need to do. And maybe I'm just getting a little bit older. My energy is lower because I have a bigger family, but I appreciate just cutting to the chase and getting right to it. Uh, But one of the things that that can happen in the book of Mark to us as we read it is because it's so fast-paced, it's easy for us to feel like it's segmented. Like, this story doesn't necessarily relate to the next story, which doesn't relate to the next story. And it can be easy to kind of separate them out in our minds. And as I was thinking about it, it's honestly, it's like if you were trying to make some money writing a devotional, it, Mark is a great place to do it. Because there's all these little short stories with life lessons. Man, church Bible studies would eat that up. And they're not bad. They're not wrong. Um, those things are true. But what we're discovering in the book of Mark is there is a significant and really important thread that runs through all of the book of Mark. There is something very specific that the author, John Mark, is trying to communicate. And it's something that if we just jump from story to story, we're going to miss out on. And so really, the, the big motivation that Mark had for writing this gospel is he really wanted to nail home with his mostly Jewish audience that Jesus is the Messiah that you have been waiting for. If you go all the way back to the beginning of Scripture, we see that God had this relationship with humanity, and we decided we knew better, and so we severed that relationship with God. We rebelled against him. But from the moment that that relationship was severed, God had been promising he would send someone to make things right again. And all throughout the Old Testament, you get these glimpses of what that person was going to be and what they were going to look like. And so at the time when Jesus came onto the scene, everyone was expecting at some point that this Messiah would show up. And Jesus started to do ministry and he started to tell people, hey, I'm the one that you have been waiting for. And what Mark is trying to do here is he's really trying to nail home, Jesus is who you've been waiting for, but he looks really different than you thought he would. 
they had a really specific idea in their mind of what a Messiah would look like and how a Messiah would act and what kind of kingdom a Messiah would set up on this world. And, and Mark's like, Jesus is not what you think, but he's exactly what you need. And he's trying to open these people's eyes to that truth. And, and the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to this truth as well. I don't know if you guys have ever been in that position where you had something super planned out and you knew exactly how it was supposed to go. You, maybe it was, it's like a presentation or an event, a party, birthday party or an anniversary, something like that, where you're like, I have this completely planned out. Nothing can go wrong. It's, it's, it's airtight. And then you get into it and the whole thing just like absolutely falls apart. I don't know if any of you have had that experience before. I know I have. And it was actually during one of the bigger moments of my life. It was during my proposal to my wife, Megan. I had an, I'm just going to say it, no arrogance here. I had an awesome idea. And it went down in flames like bad. So let me just, let me just fill you in on like what happened. My wife is a year older than me. She graduated college a year before me. And so while I was finishing up my last year in school, my wife uh, went to India and served at an orphanage in India for six months. And so what, you know, we were serious up until that point. We knew this thing was headed toward marriage. We had talked about it and that kind of thing. And so she knew that when she came back, at some point, there was going to be a proposal. And so what I decided to do, I was going to surprise her when she got back. She didn't expect me to be there when I got back. Her family lives in New Brunswick, Canada. I was in Oklahoma going to college at the time. And so I booked a flight, and I worked it all out with her parents. I came up there, and I surprised her when she got off the plane from India. And it was a great, it was a great reunion. You know, we were like, we were that young love that I look at now, I'm like, ugh. You know, uh, we, we were obnoxious to everyone, I'm sure. But we were just so excited to see each other. And... Uh, I had planned, you know, a couple days after that, I was staying with their family that I would ask Megan to marry me. And this was the plan I had set out. Megan had been helping at this hot air balloon convention that her town would throw every single year since she was a little kid. She loved hot air balloons. They're, you know, they're colorful. They're, it's exciting. And she would go and she would help run things. And she always hoped that she would be able to ride in one of the hot air balloons, but never got the opportunity to do it. And so I was like, oh, I know, I know what we can do here. This is going to be so romantic. I, I booked this hot air balloon ride with like this individual like guy. It was just a private thing. And, uh, and I was going to s- propose to her in the hot air balloon. So I saved up all the money. I changed it over into colorful Canadian money. So we were ready to go. And the day came and I'm sitting and I'm waiting and I'm waiting. We, we're waiting for the phone call from these guys to tell us, hey, we're ready. Go ahead and bring her out and surprise her. And, you know, we're trying to keep it, like, low-key, but she's, she's catching that something is supposed to be happening because I was acting super suspicious. So she was getting a little bit, like, her, her stress level was going up. She's like, what are you doing? Why are you acting so weird? We finally get the call from the hot air balloon guys. They're like, hey, we're so sorry, or sorry, as Canadians would say. She says, I'm so sorry. Like, the, the wind is so bad today, we cannot take the hot air balloon up. It would be too, it would be too dangerous. We can't do it. We got to be in the next town the next day, so we're really sorry. We're just going to have to pull the whole plug on this thing. And I was just devastated, you know. I was like, oh, man, that was going to be so romantic and so cool. Okay, so we start scrambling to come up with a plan B. And Megan's family pulled some strings with some local, like, uh, like the mayor or something like that of Sussex, and they got us into the hockey rink because every Canadian town has a hockey rink. They got us in there after hours so that we could skate, just the two of us. And I'm like, okay, you know, that's a good plan B. I mean, it wasn't like cute like our skate rinks here. It was a hockey rink. It smelled like a hockey rink, looked like a hockey rink. But it was ice skating, and that was, that was kind of romantic. We had music playing, and, and I'll spare you all the emotional details, but things just weren't going quite right. 
Um, Megan was dealing with some culture shock coming back from India, and then she was feeling some stress in some areas. And then to top it all off, she was wearing skates that she had from when she was a kid, so they were super tight. And it just wasn't going great. And me, the perceptive 22-year-old that I was, was like, this is probably not the time, you know? Probably shouldn't pop the question right now. But I'm running out of time here. So we wrap up the skating, and we decide, let's go get some Tim Hortons. It's a coffee shop in Canada. It's a national treasure. Everyone loves it. And so we decided to go and get some hot chocolate at Tim Hortons. And I'm, my mind is racing. Like, how am I going to do this? I only have a couple days left here. All my plans have gone down in flames. And Megan's like, hey, what, do you mind if we go out to the covered bridge? There's this really beautiful little covered bridge uh, real close to where she lives. And I say, yeah, that's a great idea. So we go out there. We had been there before. And walking up to the covered bridge, and we're walking on the snow, and there's snow on the top, and we're holding hands, and we're talking, and we're laughing, and the, the steam is rising out of our Tim Hortons hot chocolate. And remember, I told you I'm a very perceptive young man. I was like, oh, shoot, this is it. This is the time. I better do this right now, or the moment will be past, you know? And, and I got down on a knee, and I asked Megan Mary. Of course, she said yes, and, and it, was, it was lovely. It was awesome. What I find really interesting about that experience is I had it super planned out how it should have gone. And I was convinced that that was the best way for it to go down. And nothing worked that way. Absolutely nothing worked that way. But looking at it in hindsight, I would not trade just the two of us with some Tim Hortons at a covered bridge for anything else in the world. And in fact, with hindsight as my benefit, I can, I can recognize how that's a much better representation of our relationship in our marriage than something super huge and super flashy. And I really think that that is what Mark is trying to communicate. He's like, I know you have this idea in your head that the Messiah is going to look like this, that he's going to come in and he's going to free you from oppression. He's going to kick down doors and take names and beat those bad guys up. I know that you think that's what you need. I know that you look around the world and see that that's how power is gained and kept through violence and through the bringing down of other people. I know you think that's what you expect, but I'm telling you, Jesus is here with something else, and it's actually way better than what you were hoping for. See, I think we like to believe of ourselves as people functioning in the world in 2020 that we've, we've, we've gained so much more insight beyond that. We would handle that so differently, but I think if we're honest— a lot of us approach our relationship with Jesus in a very similar way. I, I think that because I hear this term all the time, and I can't say I'm not guilty of saying it myself, but I'm trying to work it out of my vocabulary. Tell me if this sounds familiar to you. Well, my Jesus would never fill in the blank. My Jesus would always fill in the blank. Well, my Jesus stands for this, and my Jesus would never allow that. And what's really interesting is it seems like there's a whole bunch of Jesuses out there, and they're all, many of them are in direct conflict with each other. So which version of Jesus is true? See, I think, I, I, I don't want this to feel like I'm heaping shame on anyone, because I think it, it's kind of hard to avoid falling into this trap. Because we look at how the world works, and we look at our own preferences, and we look at the things that make sense to us, and we kind of stamp them onto Jesus. But if we are going to be serious disciples and followers of Jesus, we have to get out of that habit. Because when we do that, it's idolatry. It's taking Jesus and forcing him into our image rather than us becoming conformed to his image. That statement should make us take pause. That's an incredibly sobering statement. As followers of Jesus, especially in the world we're living in right now, we need to make sure that we 
understand and are reflecting the real Jesus, not my Jesus. But how's that look? How can we, how can we accomplish this? Uh, one of the beautiful things about Scripture is that's one of the major and clearest and most straightforward ways that God communicates to us exactly who Jesus is. And today we're going to look at a few stories that, like I said, at first seem like they'd be really segmented, seem like maybe they wouldn't uh, connect together. But what we begin to see when we look deeper is these all represent characteristics of the real Jesus. And these all put forth values of God's kingdom and what he's about. And these are the things that we need to make sure are, uh, are seen in our lives and are embraced in our lives as well. So each of these stories today show us a characteristic, and each of them show a value of his kingdom and how it's going to work. And make, I just want to make it clear, like, he is setting up a kingdom. It's just not the one that probably we have in mind. Are we willing to, to see it from a different perspective? And so let's just jump right into the first story here and take a look at this first characteristic that seems to be true of the real Jesus. As we go through these different stories, let's just, let's just make it like the habit this morning to be like, okay, my Jesus looks like this, the thing that makes the most sense to me. He looks like this, but this is what the real Jesus looks like in Scripture. And let's compare the two, okay? So we're going to start reading in verse 35. Jesus, up to this point, had been doing his thing, healing people, casting out demons, teaching about God's kingdom. And this is, what, this is where we pick up reading. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. So he got up super early, he left kind of the crowd of people who were around him, and he went out and he spent time with his father. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went through all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. So Jesus knew why he walked this earth. He was super on top of it. That, that mission that he had was never in question. He knew that the cross was coming in his future. He knew that the tomb was coming in his future. He knew every step of the way that would lead to that inevitable end. None of that caught him by surprise. He had a very clear picture of what his mission was, and he never once wavered from it. When I have a full picture of something, I tend to rely on myself mostly, right? If I know exactly where I'm going, I don't need Google Maps. I don't need extra landmarks. I just know where I'm going, and I can rely on what's in here to be able to get there. And that's always my tendency. But what we see here in the life of Jesus, a characteristic of Jesus, is he constantly went back and relied on his Father, there's this constant pattern of dependence on God in the life of Jesus. But honestly, that messes with my brain a little bit. Because one thing Jesus makes really, really clear to us in Scripture is that he and the Father are one. That he is God. That's kind of the whole point of the whole deal, right? Which makes me think, and this is a whole theological can of worms that you can all argue about later if you want to, but it makes me think that if there was one person who walked this planet who didn't need to live a life of dependence? It's probably Jesus, right? I mean, he was God after all. 
Yet he constantly set this, this pattern of dependence and this value of dependence on the Father. Why did he do that? I think one of the reasons is to model a behavior that we need to have as a part of our lives. Jesus modeled dependence because he knew that we needed to function out of dependence. He modeled it for us. But dependence is not a desirable characteristic in this world, right? It's not something we look at and say, oh, that person's super dependent. They're doing things right. We never look at people and say that, right? I think some of it might be just the fact that we were born in this country, in this time in history. Our freedom, our independence is a highly held value. And in moderation, there's probably nothing wrong with that. It's good to work hard. It's good to strive. It's good to set goals. But if that ever becomes the overarching value in our lives, that doesn't look very much like Jesus, does it? If my Jesus is super obsessed with my independence, being able to do things when I want, how I want, and no one can tell me to do anything different. If my Jesus is super obsessed with my independence, then he's not a very clear picture of the real Jesus. Instead, Jesus calls his followers to have constant dependence on the Father. He says, you can't it's not, it's not a mean thing to say to us. He says, you can't do this on your own. Make sure you're connected to the one who will give you strength. I find myself struggling with this. I think right now there's a billion examples that you could pull up in your mind of exactly how this plays out. Where I would really prefer if my Jesus would just say, you can do whatever you want. They can't tell you that you can or can't. And you don't even really need to worry about them. If they're against you, forget them. You're independent. You're autonomous. You do your thing. But that's not at all the picture that we see of Jesus. Jesus modeled dependence. And that needs to be a characteristic in our lives as citizens of his kingdom. The second story and second characteristic of the real reflection, the real picture of Jesus is found in verse 40. And here's what it says. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. This was a huge deal that this leper did this. Um, leprosy is this skin disease. It's a super, super bad way to go. And when we, when we read the word leper in the Gospels, it, it means a number of different skin conditions. But whatever skin condition that you would have and you'd be qualified as a leper, like, it is not a good situation for you. You've lost everything if, if you're categorized as that. You're not fun to look at because your skin has fallen off and the appendages are falling off. You've been cut off from your community. You've been ostracized. You're not allowed to be a part of the religious systems. You are literally pushed out. And that still exists today. Megan worked with lepers when she was in India at a leper colony. That still exists today. Everything is taken from people. Their community, their relationships, their health, their dignity, everything is taken from them. And so for this leper, especially during this time, especially in the Jewish context, to come up to Jesus and say, if you will, you can make me clean, is a huge breach of protocol, all right? It's a huge breach of protocol. And no one would have looked at Jesus and faulted him for saying, no, 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 I'm not going to mess with that. I don't want to catch leprosy. I don't want to, I don't want to overstep what's appropriate here. Um, can you make a, a, an office appointment and come back later when there's no one watching? You know what I mean? Like, no one would have faulted him for doing that. But instead, what we see Jesus do is he reacts like this in verse 41. 
Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him. That's so huge. No one touched lepers. He reached out his hand and he touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Jesus tells, uh, to wrap up the rest of the story, he tells this man, hey, go and, and offer your sacrifices in the temple. Tell the priest that you're clean, but don't tell people that I'm the one that has done this for you. Kind of hold off on that. Instead, this leper goes and can't help but tell everyone who will listen, Jesus healed me and you should go check him out. And more and more people came to follow Jesus and to see what he was about. See, what we see here in this passage, this value of the real Jesus, is Jesus puts people over anything else. There are a billion systems and protocols and workarounds that Jesus could have looked at and said, this would be an appropriate way forward for me to not have to deal with this really difficult and scary and and dangerous situation. But instead, he broke all of those rules to care for the individual. If we are going to be followers of Jesus, we have to prioritize people. But if I can be honest with you, and you have to be honest with yourself, sometimes my Jesus prioritizes systems or preferences or methods over people. And if my Jesus becomes so calloused that I don't care about people, then he's not the real picture of Jesus. Jesus was constantly bucking the trend to care for the individual If we are going to be good citizens of God's kingdom, we must do the same. Our last story finds Jesus in a house, teaching, healing, casting out demons. And uh, what happens is is there's a large crowd there, and the house is really full, and this crew of people show up with their friend who's paralyzed on this platform. And they're like, we'll never get through this crowd, so we need to figure out something else. So they decide to climb on the roof like boys do, you know. And, and they're like, well, we're up here now, but we can't see Jesus. Let's just punch a hole in the roof, and we'll lower him down. And that's exactly what they did. We read these stories so sterile, you know. And then he was lowered. From... Could you imagine being in there, and all of a sudden, dirt's like raining down, and this dude is being lowered? Like, that's crazy. That's a crazy situation. But Jesus sees these people, and he sees their faith, and this is what he decides to do. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, the man who was paralyzed, son, your sins are forgiven. What? Up until this point, he's he's only ever told people, like, be healed, like, get up, go, walk. But now he decides your sins are forgiven? That hits some people weird. And in verse 6, it says, now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, he knew what they were thinking, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier, I love this, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? Jesus is basically like, which of those things would be easier? Oh, they're both impossible for you? They take the same amount of effort from me to heal someone's physical body and to heal their spiritual soul says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. It's like, I want you to know this. The cat's out of the bag. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. The real Jesus is more concerned with fixing what's wrong inside of us than fixing what's wrong around us. 
oftentimes we can, we can get in our heads that my Jesus cares mostly about my problems that affect me alone. But what God has made very clear here is he cares first and foremost about our heart. He cares first and foremost about our soul. And if we walk through our life acting like, well, my Jesus is something that I can call on when I need him to fix my financial problem or my marriage problem or my relationship problem or whatever, and then I can put him back on the shelf and I only let him change certain parts of my life, that is not a real picture of Jesus. But how many of us functionally act like that? Crisis hits, Jesus, I need you so much. Coronavirus hits, Jesus, I need you so much. And then we get things under control a little bit. Like, okay, can you go sit back on the shelf and I'll I'll call you when I need you later. You can transform my life, but only to a certain extent. Like, I'm really glad when you help me out on the peripheral outside of me stuff. But if you really want to reach deep down and change me from the very core of who I am, I don't know if I'm game for that. If my Jesus is only allowed access to certain parts of my life, he is not the real Jesus. Not the one that's portrayed in scripture. So to recap, this is the real image that Jesus is being portrayed as in scripture. Someone who values dependence. Someone who will put people above everything else. Someone who knows what we need is a deep change in us, not just a change in our circumstance, not just a fresh coat of paint to look pretty to everyone else. And that's certainly not all that Jesus is, but we're going to find more and more this this confirming, solidifying picture of who he is. So what do we do with that information? That's what I kept asking myself. It's conflicting, right? Because in the world that we live, independence is seen as a positive characteristic. Depending on someone is weak. In the world we live in, systems and structures, especially those that benefit me, the ones I like, I'm I'm, I'm game for them. But people, oh man, people are difficult and they're dangerous and they're exhausting and I don't know if they're worth it. We like the tangible behavioral changes that look good on the outside. They can be controlled, they can be managed, they can be understood. I like the good things that Jesus does for me, but can I just call him when I need him? Does he have to change everything in me? This is just not what we see in scripture. And I think each of us today, the best thing we can do is pull back And take a look at my Jesus to see what he really looks like. Is he overly concerned with my political preferences, my ideologies, my economics, my safety, my security, my comfort, my nationalism? Like if if my Jesus allows me to be more concerned with being served and what I can get from people rather than what I can give and how I can serve other people, it is not the real Jesus. If my Jesus allows me to beat someone down because they are wrong or I think that they are wrong, instead of lifting them up when they are broken and hurting, in life, or in real life, or online, like they, that is not the real Jesus. If my Jesus is just like, oh, it's all good, man, I'm everyone, you can believe whatever you want, you do you, it's all good. Like, that is not the real Jesus. If my Jesus comes rolling in here on the back of a bald eagle with an American flag hanging off the back of his shoulders, shooting his guns up in the air, listening to board in the USA, church, listen, that is not the real Jesus. Seriously. Did that, just, oh, it's still here, okay. If my, here's what it comes down to. If my Jesus looks suspiciously like me with no change necessary, it's definitely not the real Jesus. But here we begin to see exactly 
who the real Jesus is. Someone who's humble, dependent on the Father, even if he didn't need to be. Someone who's willing to sacrifice status and health and break every rule in the book so that someone can feel loved and experience dignity and healing. Someone who isn't here to just make your life better or easier, but someone who has come to fix what's broken at our deepest level and forgive our sins once and for all. This has been a doozy for me this week, not because it's new information. It's not new information at all, but it's hard-hitting information. And so what I think we need to do, I think we need to do three things, depending on who you are and kind of where you're at right now this morning. The first is, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, you want Jesus to be king of your life, you want to be a part of that kingdom, we need to get into the habit of doing the hard work of consistently asking this question. When my Jesus and the real Jesus come into conflict, who are we going to pick? When my Jesus, that makes sense to me, comes into conflict with the real Jesus of Scripture, which one are we kicking to the curb? If I can be honest, there have been times in my life where my Jesus has come in conflict with the real Jesus, and I've picked my Jesus because it's easier, because I felt pressure, because I didn't want things to change. It's not easy. My goodness, it's not easy. But the kingdom that the real Jesus has established is the one that we were made to live in. So I think for each and every one of us, one of the best things we can do out of this morning is go through our life and ask the question, does my Jesus look like the real Jesus? Because the world needs to see the real Jesus. The world does not need to see a whole bunch of independent people who value systems over people who think that Jesus has just come to make us look better on the outside. That's not what the world needs to see. So let's make sure that's not who we're reflecting. The second thing we need to do out of this, I think, is that if you're watching this or you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, um, I just want you to hear this, that this picture of Jesus that we've been talking about today, this is who you've been looking for. I don't know what your journey up to this point has been. My guess would be you might have had a few versions of my Jesuses portrayed to you over the years. Maybe that's the reason that you've been hanging back on making that decision. I want you to hear this, that this Jesus, who cares more about your soul than what you look like on the outside, this Jesus that is not afraid of any of your brokenness, and this Jesus that says that you can depend on me, you cannot and don't need to try to do it on your own, this Jesus wants relationship with you. And you can make that choice right here, right now, this morning. There's no magic words. There's no magic prayer. I actually hate all of that. It's too easy to fake. But it just takes you saying to God, I've been trying to do it my way for way too long, and it is not working. I can't do this on my own. Will you please forgive me? Make me something different. That's just step one. Your whole life is going to change out of that moment, but that moment can happen today. And if you want to kind of take that step, or if you want to find out more information on how to do that, we have a really easy way to make that happen. It's through a text prompt. I know it's kind of weird. It's COVID world. But this is just the best way for that to happen. It's CP Connect to 94090. Really simple, straightforward way that'll be up after the service as well as online. If you've never taken that step, please know that the kingdom that God has set up, it's where you belong. It's what you were made to function in. And this is the real Jesus that you have been looking for. And I think the last thing we need to do this morning is we need to remember. We need to remember what kingdom we're citizens of. We need to remember who the real Jesus really is. And that's why we're going to take communion this morning. 
it's so incredible to me that, that we, month after month, are able to take this time to remember what Jesus has done for us. And part of what's happening when we do that is we remember the values of his kingdom. Because a certain kind of Messiah could have rolled in and be like, I'm going to seize power through violence and strength by reaching out and taking. But what we remember when we take communion is a Messiah who said, rather than reaching out and take, I'm going to lay down my life to accomplish victory. That should motivate us to run after and grab hold of the real picture of Jesus, one that doesn't look like the world at all, but one who represents the kingdom that we belong to. And so as the band comes up and as they play through this song, they'll give you some instruction on how to participate in communion. But I would just encourage us to kind of think, think about it from that perspective, that this is the type of kingdom that I belong to. And I want that to be evident in every part of my life. In case you're new to the, the weird prepackaged <laughs> communion thing, there's one on the top for the wafer and the next one is for the juice, all right? Just so that you're aware so that doesn't throw you. But I'd just like to pray for us and then we can remember what kingdom we belong to, who the real, what the real values of the real Jesus are that we serve. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for what you've done for us. Thank you so much that you uh, your body was broken, that your blood was poured out so that we could have relationship with you. God, I am really grateful that that is not dependent on our strength because that could never happen. But God, I just pray that we would, we would recognize what makes up being part of your family, that we would not justify, that we would not find workarounds, but instead we would just open with open arms, God, embrace the life that you have for us. It's hard. It's difficult. It's countercultural. It requires us to lose our selfishness and our arrogance, but God, it is so worth it. It might not be what we thought, but it's exactly what we need. Help us to remember that. Help us to run toward it this morning. In your awesome name, amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint. Thank you.